You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I haven't wanted to thank a photographer so much since, well, since those photos leaked of Brad Pitt on that balcony with Gwyneth Paltrow. Photos I haven't looked at in years and regret looking at at all and won't look at ever again because Brad Pitt's privacy was invaded by paparazzi. And I now know that looking at those photos was wrong, a consent violation. I won't do it again. Anyway, there's no photo credit on the picture I saw last night on cleveland.com. So I can't thank this photographer, the photographer who took that photo that I saw on cleveland.com last night. Can't thank that photographer by name, but thank you photographer for cleveland.com, whoever you are. Thank you for capturing the moment when David Walker was sentenced to four and a half years in prison. Walker, according to the report at cleveland.com by reporter Corey Schaefer, gasped audibly when he was sentenced. In the photo, his jaw is hanging open. The former youth pastor for the Dwelling Place Family Worship Center in North Olmsted, Ohio, looks stunned. How could he be going to prison? He's a youth pastor. Walker only wanted to help people. And friends, family members, and parishioners had all submitted letters to the judge before sentencing, letters that called Walker a good family man and a devoted Christian. And yet, four and a half years in prison, for what Walker called in court a random, innocent accident. Walker fucked a 14-year-old girl by accident. You know how that happens? Sometimes you slip and fall and fuck a 14-year-old. Could happen to anyone. From the report at cleveland.com, Walker said he and the youth group were in a lock-in where members sleep over inside the church when somehow the girl ended up sleeping next to him. How'd that happen? He said he thought the girl sleeping next to him was his wife, and he started rubbing her. And he didn't realize until the next morning that it was the girl and not his wife. Oops. After realizing that he'd made a terrible mistake, Walker kept making that mistake. He kept fucking that girl for four more years. Walker told that girl it was God's plan for her to keep fucking him even after she married someone else. Walker's wife, the person Walker thought he was fucking that night in the church basement, in a crowd of other sleeping teenagers, Walker's wife, Anna Walker, good Christian woman, she eventually found out that her husband was sleeping with a teenage girl, a parishioner, and a minor. Now, before you jump to any conclusions, it wasn't Walker's wife who reported him to the authorities. Anna Walker's husband isn't going to prison because Anna Walker called the cops. Anna Walker is no snitch. But it's not like Anna Walker didn't do anything after she found out about her husband sleeping with this teenage girl. She had a threesome with her husband and the teenage girl her husband was abusing. Anna Walker was sentenced in the same hearing to one year of probation by the judge who determined that she was, quote, acting at the behest of her husband, who was also the basketball coach at Cleveland Christian Academy, and who, police found during their investigation, had texted nude photos of himself to another girl at his church and asked yet another girl at his church to have a threesome with him and his wife. But the real scandal here, at least according to one of the people who submitted a letter to the court in support of David Walker, wasn't what David Walker did 
It wasn't the way he slipped and fell and fucked a girl that had been entrusted to his care by that girl's parents. No, 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 no. The real scandal was that anyone found out what David Walker was doing at all. Quote, to have some person, that would be the victim, come forward and say this, it's disgusting. The news is a steady drumbeat of stories like this. Rapey pastors, parishioners coming to the defense of their rapey pastors. It's not like this story made national news. I only found out about David Walker because I have a Google alert for youth pastor. There are stories like this in the paper, in papers, on websites like cleveland.com every day. Rapey preachers, rapey youth pastors, rapey church elders abusing kids. A blockbuster report was released last week documenting decades of sexual abuse committed by Southern Baptist preachers. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, 14 million members, 60,000 churches. The Southern Baptist Convention has always been terrible. It was founded in 1845 by supporters of slavery who thought Northern Baptists were going wobbly on the whole enslaving men, women, and children issue. Leaders, churches, and preachers in the Southern Baptist Convention have been the loudest anti-gay voices in the country for decades. Jerry Falwell Sr., Southern Baptist preacher, and lately, other Southern Baptist preachers who are still with us, have been loudly promoting the lie that gay and trans people, by simply existing, by being out, are grooming children. Well, as Church Alive International, the Cleveland church where David Walker first raped the 14-year-old girl he mistook for his wife, turns out the groomers were in the building all along, in their buildings, in their megachurches, in their leadership. And they weren't waving rainbow flags or reading from Heather has two mommies. They were waving Confederate battle flags and reading from Leviticus. From the New York Times, a sprawling report covering 20 years of sexual abuse accusations are coursing through every level of Southern Baptist society. The report, made public by the denomination on Sunday, claims that top church leaders suppressed and mishandled abuse claims, resisted reforms, and belittled victims and their families, you know, by calling them disgusting. The Southern Baptist Convention has had, for decades, has had a list a secret list, a list they did not turn over to the authorities or go to the police with, a list of hundreds of ministers and other church workers and leaders who had been credibly accused of sexual abuse. These are the same preachers, Baptist preachers, who have been telling straight people for decades that gays and lesbians are coming for your kids. Turns out they're the ones who are coming for your kids. As with all power-obsessed social conservatives, as with the Trumpers, and the Southern Baptist Convention is now basically a Trump property, every accusation of corruption, of rigged elections, of grooming, of sexual abuse is an admission of guilt. Oh, and about those lock-ins, the kind of event where kids spend the night sleeping in church with their youth pastors, the event where David Walker accidentally slept with a 14-year-old girl that he claims he thought was his wife, during a lock-in, which is a thing that happens at evangelical churches all over the country. Kids spend the night at church locked inside with their pastors and youth pastors because what could go wrong? Because of course you can trust these people with your children and the same people who trust men like David Walker with their daughters, the same people who drop their kids off at church for a slumber party with adult men 
where kids get raped all the time, those same people then head off to their local library to pick a drag queen story hour where no kid has gotten raped ever. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If kids got raped by clowns as often as they get raped by preachers, it would be against the law to take your kid to the circus. All right, coming up on today's show, through sheer force of will, I am going to get the word, my neologism, pegging into the Oxford English Dictionary. And now I have help from the inside. Jesse Scheidlower, former editor at large from the OED, is here to counsel me on why pegging is not yet in the Oxford English Dictionary. And he tells me it will eventually get in. We have a great nerdy conversation on the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love. On the regular Lovecast, free for all, tons of cues, lots of A's. But if you want more Savage Lovecast, more questions, more guests, and no ads, subscribe now at savage.love. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Youth. I'm a bi cis guy from the Northeast with a wife of 15 years, and I absolutely love her. And that's not the issue. In high school, I explored my sexuality. I had some strong crushes on men, hooked up with guys, found a great community in the GSA. Then in college, I really only dated women, and you know that attraction felt a lot stronger, and I'm totally happy with that. I recently decided that I'm just going to be honest with folks that I used to hook up with guys and that I consider myself bi, even though I'm in a heterosexual monogamous relationship. All the straight friends I mentioned this to were super accepting. They were like, hey, that's really cool. My experience sharing it with gay friends has been less positive. The first gay friends I told immediately joked that he didn't realize bi people even existed. The second gay friend I mentioned it to keeps coming back to the question of how bi am I? 80, 20, 60, 40, different ways of analyzing it. And I find this pretty annoying. Then something happened last week that really bothered me. And he said something that made me think about it a little differently. I'm involved in politics locally here, and I was speaking at an event last week. I noticed that the speaker lineup had on it a guy that I actually used to hook up with and had a really big crush on in high school. He was traveling in for the event, and I mentioned this to my friend who I will add is a professor of ethnic studies at a prominent liberal arts college. So I take his opinions pretty seriously. He's also a gay black man who I trust a lot uh, when it comes to speaking about marginalized communities. When I mentioned this to him, just to kind of say, hey, this guy I used to have a crush on is going to be there tonight. I hope it's not awkward when I run into him. His response was again to analyze me for mentioning that this was a crush rather than a hookup. And what does that really mean about my sexuality? So I called him out for constantly analyzing this part of me. And he said the following, bisexual men have a tendency to create ambiguity about their sexuality to an audience of people whose marginalization is connected to their sexuality and then wonder why they get a lot of questions. This really bothered me, but also as someone who I really, really trust when it comes to marginalized communities, I do wanna take the opportunity to listen. Am I wrong for getting bent out of shape about this? Should I take the hint that these are not details that I should open up with when it comes to my gay friends? I'm sorry that you seem to know a lot of shitty gay people, including some gay people who one might think, you might think, anybody might think, would know better than to engage in the kind of parsing about exactly, broken down by percentages, how bi you are. You're bisexual, you say that yourself, you're mostly attracted primarily attracted to women, and you are in a long-term, exclusive, 
monogamous relationship with an opposite sex partner. That should really be the end of the discussion. And I think I would advise you, you would be well advised, and I shall now advise you well, Lee, not to get drawn into conversations with people about the exact nature or degree or weight if you try to divide your bias up and heap it onto the binary scales of attractions to male or females, you might be. Just don't get drawn into that conversation. I am bisexual. I am married to a woman. We are monogamous. You don't have to get into it any further than that. Ugh, period. The end. And you should be able to share with someone you consider a friend the fact that there's a guy you think is attractive. There's a guy you used to have a crush on from high school is coming to town. Uh, that's going to be a little awkward for you. Maybe, though, that's not something you want to share with a friend who's already demonstrated to you that they're not good or trustworthy about your bisexuality, not somebody who understands it or gets it. If someone has already tried to draw you into conversations about just how bi you are or put you in a position where you feel like you have to defend or explain your bi-ness, eh, Maybe not a friend or not a friend you want to be discussing crushes on opposite sex, same sex, current or high school era crushes. Any crushes at all. Hi, Dan. Cisgender woman, mom of two in the Midwest. My husband and I have been married for nine years this summer. Our sex life started to go downhill before we got married, a red flag I should have noticed and run from, but alas, I didn't and wouldn't give up everything we've created, especially our beautiful children. That being said, our marriage has been largely sexless for nearly a decade. The times I've tried to bring it up, I've been met with excuses like, I'm just not good at initiating, but I love sex, so let's do it more. Or the most hurtful excuses can be summed up by saying that he has body shamed me a few times. All this to say that after nearly nine years of feeling rejected, never being fulfilled by the infrequent vanilla sex, I just don't see my husband as a sexual being anymore. Not only that, the mere thought of having sex with him makes me cringe. Last summer, I told him I wanted a divorce. After each time I have asked over the last several months, I backpedal because he says that it'll ruin our kids' lives. It will ruin our lives, that his desire is back now, convenient, and that he will not be giving me any sort of spousal support. I'm currently working towards becoming financially independent, and I'm moving out in a couple weeks to get some space, which is his idea, not mine. He thinks it will help rekindle my desire. I feel like he's just delaying the inevitable and creating fear in me so I don't leave. Fear of fucking up my kids, fear of being on my own financially, etc. Am I being dramatic about wanting to dump the motherfucker already? What do I do? You get that divorce and you don't need your husband's permission or consent to get that divorce. And yeah, a little convenient that now he suddenly desires you again or is offering to put out again. And then pivoting from that to, you know, I'm not going to provide you with any financial support would seem to be both trying to tempt you to stay in the relationship by dangling the carrot of having sex with someone you're no longer attracted to, your husband, and the stick of having to entirely make it on your own. And he doesn't have that in his power. A court might order him to provide you with spousal support. So whether he provides you with spousal support or not after the divorce is not up to him. And if anybody's going to fuck the kids up here, it's your soon-to-be ex-husband making this a contentious divorce. 
him trying to leverage money against you to keep you in an unhappy marriage that makes you frustrated and miserable, that is going to make this a contentious high-conflict divorce when it could be an amicable parting of ways. I am not advocating for you to stay in this relationship. I am not trying to save this marriage. If the issue was sexlessness, you had an option prior to pushing the divorce nuclear button, and that was going to your husband and saying, you know, if you still felt this way, and perhaps you don't, hey, I love you, we're good parents, good partners, we obviously do not have a sexual connection, we have not had sex for almost a decade, I am up for staying with you, but I do not want to live in a sexless, well, a sexless marriage I might want to live in, I will not lead a sexless life, and you could have put him on notice that you were going to seek sex elsewhere and that he, assuming he hadn't already sought sex elsewhere, was now free to seek sex elsewhere himself. But that's not ultimately the choice he wanted to make. I don't think that's a position that you can dial this conflict back to. I think you are leaving and he has invited you to leave. He's asked you to go. You're moving out on your own. Stop talking with your husband about the terms of your divorce and the financial settlement. Those aren't up to him. Talk to your lawyer about those terms. And unfortunately, it sounds like you guys aren't going to be able to work this out without the assistance of a judge. Ultimately, you're going to have to talk with a judge about those terms. And not up to him. Again, not up to him whether he's going to provide you with spousal support. Up to the terms of your divorce, which will be laid down by a court. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a middle-aged, gay, cis man in a long-term open relationship. I'm hoping you can give me some clarity about the risk of contracting HIV through oral sex. I like sucking off guys and getting my face fucked, usually completely random guys I find on apps. Obviously, I don't use condoms for oral sex because no one does. I know the risks for herpes, gonorrhea, and all that, and I get tested regularly, but it's really hard to find good information about HIV. My doctor tells me it can be transmitted through oral sex, but extremely rarely, so it's not something to worry about. I asked about getting on PrEP, and he said it probably wasn't worth risking the side effects for something so unlikely, as I never have anal sex. Right now, I only give two or three recreational blowjobs a year, though I'd like more. I also ask guys not to come in my mouth. Do guys who only give oral use PrEP? Should they? Should I? Or am I just being excessively anxious? Worrying is one of my many talents. You are extremely, extremely unlikely to contract HIV giving oral sex. At the height of the AIDS pandemic, before PrEP, before the drug cocktail, before Lazarus syndrome, before there were any treatments at all, when contracting HIV was a death sentence, I spoke to epidemiologists. I spoke to sex researchers. I wrote about this at the time. And a lot of these sex researchers and epidemiologists, many of them gay, felt that anal sex with a condom with someone who was HIV positive was riskier than oral sex with that same HIV positive guy without a condom. That a condom leaking or breaking during anal sex was a greater risk to an HIV negative guy than swallowing the load of an HIV positive guy was. So in our brave new world of undetectable equals uninfectious, where so many of the guys you're blowing who may be positive are in treatment and have undetectable viral loads, and other guys that you may be blowing who may also be having anal sex being on PrEP themselves, your risk of getting HIV giving a couple of blowjobs a year 
even if you stepped up the amount of blowjobs you're giving by a factor of 10, your risk is so extremely low that, yeah, I agree with your doctor. Getting on PrEP would be a waste of time, money, medication, and there are sometimes for some guys side effects to taking PrEP. And if you can avoid those side effects and can reasonably and rationally avoid those potential side effects by not taking PrEP because you're not having anal intercourse because you're just giving the occasional blowjob, you would be well advised to avoid the risks of those side effects because your risk of contracting HIV like this is vanishingly low. All that said, I know at least one guy personally who during the HIV, well, two guys, I think, personally, who during the AIDS crisis, during the darkest days, contracted HIV, giving blowjobs. If they were being honest about the sex that they were having and the risks that they were taking, and I have no reason to believe that they weren't. So it can't be eliminated. There's some risk here, some infinitesimally small risk. So I guess if that infinitesimally small, hard to quantify, hard to measure risk of contracting HIV somehow is going to provoke so much anxiety in you giving those two blowjobs a year. Maybe you could get on PrEP. Some people are on PrEP just because it lessens their anxiety around being sexually active with other men. Some gay men are on PrEP for just that reason. And that's a valid, I think, rational reason to get on PrEP. But that's about alleviating your anxiety with PrEP. That's PrEP as Xanax. That's not about lowering your already impossibly low risk of contracting HIV through oral sex. And again, we're talking about HIV through oral, contracting HIV potentially through oral sex now when so many of the guys that you are going to be blowing if they're positive are in treatment and uninfectious or on PrEP themselves and therefore highly unlikely to contract HIV and therefore not going to expose you potentially to HIV. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old bi woman in a four-month-old relationship with a lovely guy who is just so kind and open, and it's the best relationship I've ever had. Um, my question is this. I've been interested in consensual non-consent, CNC, for quite a while now. I was nervous about bringing it up to my boyfriend, but since he's so kind and open, I thought, you know, might as well just do it. Specifically, uh, what would really turn me on is waking up to him performing a sex act on me. Of course, like this would be completely consensual and like negotiated beforehand. And um, the only reason, you know, I want to do it with him is because I know that he wouldn't take advantage of me. Obviously, we have trust. And so that's all said and done. And he, um, in that conversation, said, well, yeah, I mean, I might actually be into that too. You know, I, I would be down to maybe if you waking up to you having, like going down on me. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. And then, you know, we, we can build our our way up from there. But, and of course, we agreed that it could be stopped at any time and, of course, like completely consensual in the moment. However, there is that aspect of one of us will be asleep and, therefore, it's not inherently consensual. And, I mean, I guess that's the point. That's why it's kinky. That's why I fantasize about this. I'd love to hear also from other listeners that, you know, how they, you know, if they feel the same thing. But um, obviously the difference is unlike other kinks, you can't ask them if they're in the mood to do it. So that's the whole point. And uh, that's why I haven't done it yet. 
It's very nerve-wracking because, you know, I'll see my boyfriend sleeping and I don't want to risk bothering him. Or I'm sure you feel the same way about me because we both agree that this is something we want to do together. But, yeah, I was just wondering if anyone else has these desires and if there's any way to mitigate this risk and kind of just plunge in because I'm just so nervous and I feel like he is as well. Mitigating the risks of what? You ask how to mitigate the risks here. And when it comes to consensual non-consent, CNC, usually discussed in the context of BDSM play and established DS dom-sub relationships between people who know and trust each other. There's a real bedrock of trust here. It involves, you know, ravishment play. It involves the top being empowered to go for it, even if the bottom is saying, no, I don't want this. It's a kind of consensual play where the bottom at least in theory, is not allowed or able to withdraw their consent as the play unfolds. Now, a real and rational and sane and trustworthy dom, if they're engaged in a CNC scene and the bottom seems distressed and the withdrawal of consent see, you know, is not just, oh, no, don't, no, don't. It is like desperate and intense. It's probably going to knock it off. Probably won't have to get to a desperate or intense point. Consensual, safe, sane, even rack tops. People who engage in risk-aware consensual kink are going to be reading the bottom's cues and adjusting as they go, even in the context of a CNC play. But what you're talking about is giving your partner permission to initiate sex while you're sleeping, while you're unconscious. You will come to if your partner initiates sex with you while you're sleeping, while you're unconscious, with your advanced prior consent. And at that moment, if you're not into it, you have the power to withdraw your consent, to roll over and say, uh, not now. Thanks for trying bad gas. This wasn't the night of sleep I wanted interrupted or for you to initiate sex during, cause I have a work meeting at 6am or whatever it might be. And he can do the same thing. If you start blowing him and he comes to, and he doesn't feel like getting blown at that particular moment during that particular sleep session. He's going to pull his dick out of your mouth. And then what's going to happen? You're not going to force it back in. You're going to roll over. I think the risk here is less the unconscious person feeling traumatized about the partner that they had given permission to in advance to initiate sex during sleep. You know, that person being traumatized, I think the risk is greater here that the person who initiated the sex if the other person isn't receptive when they wake up, is going to feel embarrassed and not want to risk attempting this again. That seems if things, you know, if it's a negative experience, if things go south, it doesn't work out the way either of you want, that seems the greater risk for the kind of CNC scene you're describing. I would really compare what you're describing less to BDSM play, a, a dom-sub relationship, uh, TPE, total power exchange. I would compare it more to the kind of affection that people in long-term relationships engage in. I can walk up behind my husband and put my hands on his ass and nuzzle the back of his neck. And if he's not feeling it at that moment, he'll shrug me off and tell me to knock it off. And I will knock it off. I wouldn't do that to somebody at the gym, some strange guy. I don't know at the gym. I'm not going to walk up to him, some strange guy at the gym and grab his ass and nuzzle the back of his neck. That would be assault. And so it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be consensual, but 
I have my partner's implicit, implied consent to touch him, to touch them. In a way, I don't have a stranger's implicit, implied consent to touch them. And if my partner doesn't want to be touched at any particular moment, they'll withdraw their consent and I will stop. I sometimes have touched a partner while they were asleep, just rolled over and started cuddling them. And I have cuddled my husband in the night and he has pulled away from me and shrugged off because he didn't want to be touched at that moment or woke up and just wasn't in the mood for cuddling, wasn't traumatized by that. And I think this is just a notch, one great big notch above that kind of initiation. What you're talking about is initiating sex before your partner is fully conscious. Sex that your partner, as they become fully conscious, they can call a halt to just as you, if your partner initiates sex that you have consented to in advance, him doing just that, initiating sex while you're asleep. If you come to and that wasn't the right night, wasn't the right time, you are free to, in that moment, withdraw your consent. And I don't think you will be traumatized by that. So I don't think the risks here are that require a lot of prior thought and negotiation and mitigation are that great. I think what you really need to talk about in advance is if I'm not feeling it, please don't be so hurt that you guessed wrong, picked the wrong night and try again, please some other time. And don't let that prevent you from trying again, please at another time. And a final note, final thought, there have been some cases that went to court where people claim to have had their partner's prior consent to have sex with them while they were unconscious, knocked out basically on drugs or alcohol, roofied, and have gotten into trouble with the law. And courts have ruled, I think the court in Canada has ruled, that someone cannot consent to sex in advance that's going to unfold while they are unconscious and not able, in these cases, to obtain or regain consciousness. That's not what you're describing here. You're describing being asleep, not being knocked out, being able to regain consciousness, and your partner initiating sex, even beginning to perform a sex act with and on you that you've consented to in advance, that you will become conscious during, and conscious very early during, and able to, again, withdraw your consent in that moment if you're not feeling it. So I don't think what you're describing really is comparable with those other cases that I'm sure leapt to some listeners' minds as I was discussing your question. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls to revisit a grievance of mine. I opened the show recently playing a recording of a street preacher at Texas Tech which was posted to TikTok. She was warning a crowd of Texas Tech boys that Texas Tech girls will pour margaritas down their throats and then take them back to their dorm rooms and peg them. And everyone knew what the street preacher meant by peg. Not one face in that crowd scrunched up in confusion. Pegging, the word for a woman fucking a man in the ass with a strap-on dildo, coined in Savage Love in 2001. In use ever since, two decades, there have been books, videos, movies, an entire episode of Broad City revolved around it. Everyone knows what pegging is. And yet... The Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, the authority on the English language, doesn't have a listing for pegging, which means I don't have the citation I have earned and deserve in the OED. Staycation, jeggings, vaxxed, all in the OED. Cunty, cuntish, cunted, and cunting in the OED. Added in 2016, all those C words. 
I want answers and here to give them. Jesse Scheiglauer, former editor-at-large of the Oxford English Dictionary, former president of the American Dialect Society. He specializes in sexual slang and is the author of The F Word, a comprehensive historical study of the word fuck, which is in the OED. Hey, Jesse, how are you? Good, Dan. How are you? I'm angry, obviously. You can hear that tone in my voice. Why is pegging... Well, first of all, in your opinion, should pegging be in the OED? Has it earned it? I think it belongs in the OED, yes. Okay, why isn't it in the OED? Well, the short answer is these things take time. And yes, you have mentioned a number of other words that are more recent. There are words more recent still. COVID is in the OED. A bunch of COVID terms are in. So it is possible for some things to get in extremely quickly. Um, but the usual reason for things taking more time than one would like is that it tends to be a somewhat conservative process about putting words in. You know, you don't want to put in words too quickly if it turns out there are going to be some flash in the pan that, you know, people use it for six months and they go away and you have a buzzword that's enshrined in the OED until the end of time. And, and so, wait, wait, but jeggings but, made it into mm-hmm. the OED in like four years. Jeggings, a combination of... I don't know, leggings and jeans, jeggings that got in like Mm -hmm. on the glide path. Some things can be faster. Some things can be slower. Uh, You tend to be a little bit more careful about, there are a few categories that you want to be careful about. Um, Coined words are, are in that category. It's actually fairly rare. People say, well, I coined this great word. How do I get it into the dictionary? And the answer is it has to be common. It has to be in use. And pegging without question is common and in use. Uh, but very often when you coin a word, it has associations with the coiner only that you know, it will always say, you know, as Dan Savage coined, or it will always be in some context. It, it's not used freely. Mm-hmm. So if you have a word like that, you might want to be a little bit more careful about putting it in right away, because if it always has. So, so for example, words that you put into the dictionary, uh, any dictionary, really, the things that you want to put in are words that are used naturally. Any word that's used with some kind of explanation, whether that explanation is this word means so-and-so uh, every time you see it, or this word was coined by so-and-so, um, you know, those are the kind of things you, you want to be careful about. Uh, so an example of a word that would n- probably never go in, there are a lot of phobias. Everyone has a phobia, phobia, fear of this, fear of heights, fear of the number 13. These are fine. What's not fine is something like Iraqi butyrophobia which is the fear, the alleged, you know, the fear of having peanut butter stick to the roof of your mouth. Mm -hmm. Now, the only time this word occurs is in a list of phobias or someone saying, hey, did you know that? No no one goes to the doctor and, uh, you know, the psychiatrist and says, well, I think you have Iraqi butyrophobia. So, you know, that would never go in. Um, Now, again, I don't think pegging is not in that category. As you say, people, you know, not even practitioners of pegging, you know, people who are opposed to it, people who don't think the way we do, they use the word, they know what it means, everyone knows what it means. That street preacher, Um, she knew what it meant. The street preacher knew what what it means, yeah. But she probably, Um, wait, 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 but she didn't pause to say, as coined by Dan Savage and Savage Love in 2001, or by my readers, actually, it was a reader contest to come up with a name for that. I'm always hearing from people who use the word pegging and then are surprised that I coined it. People have used it with me and then mm-hmm. were surprised. And I just saw on Instagram and I posted to my stories, uh, a sex education account put this up, pegging the action of a man getting fucked in the peach emoji with a dildo mm-hmm. started with pirates sticking their peg legs in each other's asses. I see misattributions out there. 
where people are just uh, wrong about the, the, the etymology of this word. Yeah, so fake origin stories, especially for sexual or, or slang terms, are also something that you want to be careful about. Fuck you did not, in fact, come from pluck you, referring to, uh, you know, the whole thing with the Battle of Agincourt and English longbowmen. And something. You know, those are never true. Well, you wrote, you, wrote the um, word, you wrote the book on the F word. It also doesn't come from fornication under the consent of the king, which some people, you know, which that's a myth that goes around, that brothels used to have F-U-C-K written over the door because they had a license from the king. Yes, fornication under consent of king or for unlawful carnal knowledge. Um, in general, nothing is from an acronym. You know, if someone tells you that something is from an acronym, it's almost certainly not true. Fuck is a different story, though. But yeah, the, the fact that the origin is obscured and people are coming back to, you know, hundreds of year old, you know, 300 year old stories about pirates, uh, you know, that's a sign. Yeah, this has got to be pretty established now. If you're, if, if you're saying this word is 300 years old, you know, that, that, that's another good sign. Okay, well, pegging is only 20, 21 years old. Mm-hmm. And you think, former editor at large of the Oxford English Dictionary, you think it belongs in there. You think it, it's earned its spot, and I've earned my citation in the OED, which after which I can retire and die. When is it going to get in? Why isn't it in yet? Who do I have to lobby? Well, uh, the the good answer is you don't have to lobby anyone. I mean, I, I've spoken to former colleagues there, uh, and it is it, it has been on a watch list for a number of years now. There's you know there's an internal list of you know here's this new thing should we pay attention to it? Yeah, so it goes on the list, and you know there are there are a lot of words. You know there are you know thousands, tens of thousands of words on this list because we're tracking you know we're tracking you track everything, and there are some things you put on just so you can say no this doesn't this should never go in or this this probably doesn't belong in. So wait, wait, that means the OED has like a no-fly list. Not a formal thing, but but if someone said you know if someone said Iraqi butyrophobia, you'd want to put it in just so you can say this probably doesn't go in mm-hmm. you know, unless the evidence really changes. Uh, we're not going to do this. But you know there are hundreds of words going in all the time. But there are you know thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of words that could go in and and might go in at some point. Um, and pegging is on that is in that category. Pegging is on the list. It's been on the list for years. I think it is very likely that it will go in. You know there there are many things where we have a concept that doesn't have a word for it and that goes on for a very long time. Or conversely, we have something with tons and tons of words like there. Are, a gigantic number of slang words for breasts or for sex or violence, you know, like, or drunkenness. Mm-hmm. The fact that we have words for these concepts doesn't mean we don't need more. We do need more because that's how slang works. Okay, so what do I do? Am I just supposed to wait patiently? Do I hurt my cause if I get people to tweet at the OED, which is at OED, tweet at them now to get pegging in? Does it <laughs> does it hurt my cause to 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 campaign for it? Um, it probably uh, see in, in this case there's not really anything to campaign for because uh, the word itself it it, belo- it objectively belongs in and I think that OED editors would be- would agree with that as well. What would not help, for example, so so let's take a different word, a coined word uh, that would not fall into this, the, the category of pegging, is something that probably does not belong in, and that word is. Santoro. <laughs> wait, wait. Some, what? Something you're familiar with. What about monogamish? Uh, monogamish is different. I think monogamish does belong in and probably will go in. But Santorum is, is a great example of something that I don't think belongs in because th- this is a classic example of a stunt word. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something, you know, it's coined for one particular purpose. It's not, probably not something that one would actually use. I mean, even though the referent 
frothy mix, et cetera. Like, this is a real thing. This is something that one might need to talk about. But this is not, unlike pegging, this is not something where people actually say this, actually talk about this. You know, any, any times you would see Sam Torm, it's, you know, as coined by Dan Savage to, you know, to describe blah, blah, blah in reference to so-and-so. Like, that, that would be something that would not go in. So if you tweeted at OED constantly saying, we have to put Sam Torm in, that wouldn't help the cause. I just want to, I'll put a pin in this though, that when Rick Santorum, Mm -hmm. you know, years and years after the Santorum neologism campaign ran for president, a whole bunch of people were like, oh my God, his last name is terrible. Does he not know? So there were people out there when he ran for president who thought Santorum, the frothy mix substance came first. And then this guy Mm -hmm. somehow wound up with that terrible name. Um, We're both assuming that everybody out there listening to us knows what the OED is. Can you give us the brief elevator pitch for what the OED is and why I'm so obsessed with getting my name into it? Well, the OED is the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the largest dictionary of English. Uh, It's been uh, going for depending on how you look at the timing, 150 years or so. Uh, the current print version, which came out in 1989, is 20 volumes long, but now it is, uh, the online version is greatly expanded from that. Um, and the OED is the historical record of our language. Um, it's what's called a historical dictionary. And what that means is that for every sense of every word, there are quotations in the text showing how that word is used. So, if you have an example of something, whether it's a common word like table or an obscure word like, you know, some philosophical term or an obscure sexual term, um, it will show, well, this, this word has been around since the 15th century. Here are examples from Shakespeare, from Dickens, from, you know, whoever, of, of the word actually in context. So you can see this is something only used in legal cases. This is something used only in fiction. This is only used in South African English. Mm-hmm. And by looking at the quotations, you can see well, how, how old the word is and how long and precisely how it's been used. So being, finding the, the earliest example of something is very important because it shows how the language develops. And it's not always um, easy to we, find that first example. But in it, this case, it, it's very hard. It's easy. Yes. Well, mo- yeah, most words are not coined deliberately uh, in a way that you can track down. It happens sometimes. You know, like if there is a new invention, there might be a word connected to that, you know, trade name perhaps connected to that. Uh, some words are deliberately coined, but most of the time they are just out there. You eventually realize that the word is, you know, being used more frequently and you can't come up with an exact coin. So, so being able to, and especially with sexual terms, mm-hmm. because these are things that until very recently were not written down or weren't written in places where you had any kind of access to them. So were you at the OED when Kanti, Kantish, Kantid, and Kanting were all added at the same time? Were you part of that conversation around all of those C words? I don't remember the precise timing. I did work on most of the sexual entries. I think some of the derived Kant forms were or after my time, um, I did rewrite the entire fuck entry mm-hmm. uh, when I was there, but I don't remember about the Cunty ones. 2016, I looked it up. Cunty, Cuntish, Oh, Cunty. Yeah, that, that would have been a, a, little, a little bit after I left. Okay, okay. So your advice to me is it won't hurt for me to sick my listeners on the OED, at OED on Twitter, but it's not going to speed the process along. I just have to be patient. Uh, that's probably true. And, and I've, again, I've been in touch with people there and said, Hey, this is, you know, this really is common. This is 
you know, th- this belongs in, and uh, you know, maybe that'll bump it up the list a little bit. I, I can't say. W- one of the myths about the OED is that it's only concerned with formal English, or it's what a Victorian gentleman would use. I mean, the OED has always been inclusive of a wide variety of forms of language. Well, the reason I'm so anxious about this is that my brother got a copy of the OED when we were teenagers because mm-hmm. we were very weird, mm-hmm. my brother and I. We were the weird kids. My other brother and my mm-hmm. sister were the normal kids. And, you know, that was when you would get a single volume and it came with a magnifying glass because the print was so small. And Mm -hmm. my brother is an English professor and I just want to be able to spike this football before either of us dies. I want this to happen when we're both still alive and I can say, ha, to my older brother, I'm in the OED and you're not. Because I'm a monster. I'm petty. Because we're still kids. He's still my older brother and I'm still the bratty younger brother. And I just need this to happen before I die. Well, if it, if, it, if, you're, if it helps your familial relationship, I can point out that there is, in fact, one quotation in OED from Dan Savage <gasps> right now. And that is the word dick since 4B sexual intercourse with a man, men as source of sexual gratification, uh, which the earliest example we have is from a blues song in 1956. But the most recent example is from 2013, Dan Savage, American Savage. And it reads, a lesbian called my podcast to complain that her bisexual girlfriend actually liked dick gasp. So you, you are in the OED right now. Oh my God, I am already in the OED. I'm going to get off this phone after this interview and I'm going to call my older brother, Billy, and I am going to taunt him like I'm still 12 years old because in my heart, I still am. Um, Before we let you go, and thank you so much for that, uh, I'm beside myself. I feel like I've won, like I said, for language geeks, for people who write, getting a citation in the OED is like getting your EGOT all at once, your Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. So Uh I just got my EGOT from you. Jesse Scheidlower, tell us quickly about the F word, your book. Uh, so the F word is a historical study of the word fuck. Uh, and by historical, I mean like the OED. So every form of the word, every part of speech, every phrase, every compound, uh, there are quotations going back to the earliest we can find, which in some cases, like the word fuck itself, goes back to you know the 14th century, 15th century, um, and in some cases are very recent, you know, very recent sexual examples. And it is long and extensive and has a historical introduction that talks about uh, the development of the word and some of these myths, you know, the, the origin myths, fornication under consent of kings. You know, some of these are very interesting themselves, uh, the stories about them and how it started to become more common, you know, when it could appear in print in different places, famous people who used it before the recent time, and things like that. And it has been through three editions. Uh, the most recent was in 2009. I'm doing some work about updating it. There's more uh, more online resources we can use now. There are newer things. So, for example, AF, cool AF, like that, that is not in yet because that came out. Uh, that, that was developed after the last publication. So I'm always working on that. And uh, if you are interested in anything fuck related, uh, it's something I could recommend. Jesse Scheidlower, former editor-at-large of the Oxford English Dictionary, former president of the American Dialect Society, a listener to the Savage Lovecast because he reached out to me after hearing me complain about this, specializes in sexual slang, author of the F word. Pick it up. Jesse, thank you so much for giving me my EOD EGOT today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. It's a great great pleasure to be on the show. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis, straight, married woman in my early 30s calling from the Southwest with a question about straight men's perception of sex acts as gay or straight. 
My husband has recently started asking me to touch his ass with my fingers, toys, etc., which really, really turns him on. Turns him on more than any PIV, flow jobs, or hand jobs ever have. He also wants to play with me in this way, but I'm not as into it as much as he is, and he is very turned on by either my ass or his. He has confided in me that he worries, however, that his desire to have his ass touched makes him somehow gay. Not just that he wants to play with my ass, but that he wants me to play with his a lot. He did grow up in a very small Christian town, and though he's never been with a man and claims he's never been attracted to man, he does like to be a sub and is terrified it makes him gay. Does my husband wanting his ass to be penetrated, does that naturally result in embarrassment from straight men? Can you help shed some light on streets and ass play? I did tell him there was a history of this, especially in the early emergent West, but he's still concerned that somehow the shame of having this happen makes him gay. I don't know what's going on between your husband's ears. I know what's going on between his legs. I don't know what's going on between his ears. He may be telling you that he's afraid this means he's gay because he knows he's gay or bi, but if he's being truthful when he says that he's never been attracted to a man and that he has no desire to be with a man, that he wants you, a woman, his wife in this case, to play with his ass and penetrate him. There's nothing about being a male sub, nothing about a dude being tapped into his ass, being able to enjoy anal stimulation and pleasure, even penetration, that makes that dude gay by definition or by default. When a woman fucks a man in the ass with a strap-on dildo, that is straight and sometimes bi sex. It is not gay sex. I am gay. Gay is not about the buttholes. Gay is not about penetration necessarily. There are a lot of gay guys out there who aren't into having their asses touched, who aren't into being penetrated or penetrating anyone. Gay guys for whom peak sex, the best sex is you know, fantasy play or blowjobs or hand jobs or frittage or something else. And so, yeah, like straight people project onto gay people this shit about PIV that, you know, if there isn't PIV, there wasn't straight sex. And they look at gay people, gay men, and think if there isn't anal penetration, there's not gay sex. And so if you're into anal penetration, that is the definitional gay thing. That's the gay sex act. And so even if a man is doing it with a woman, having anal sex with a woman, that there's something gay about that. And the gay is going to metastasize. And eventually your husband, who's never been attracted to a man, taking him at his word, is suddenly going to want to make out with dudes and suck dicks. Yeah, no, that's not how the gay thing works. And it's not how the butt thing works. There are straight guys out there, we just talked about them recently on the show, who are oral subs, who don't like to get their dick sucked, but love to eat pussy and are, you know, feel submissive about it and want to give that pleasure and serve their female partners in that way without any reciprocity, without getting a blowjob in return. And there are straight guys out there who want to be penetrated during sex, who want their female partners to be the ones who fuck them, who do the fucking. And that is a valid form of heterosexual desire and heterosexual sexual expression. It is stigmatized, not because gay people want it to be stigmatized, not because gay people are looking at your husband and thinking, faggot, but because straight people look at gay men. Straight men often look at gay men, but also straight women look at gay men and think, 
yeah, they get fucked in the ass. That is a gay thing to do or a gay thing to want. And then, yeah, guys like your husband wind up feeling terribly conflicted and worry unnecessarily that too much ass play makes the baby go gay. That's a riff on the name of a long-running show in Chicago. No one's going to get that reference except a handful of listeners in Chicago. You're welcome, gang. You shouldn't worry. You should enjoy. And he should enjoy. It is a wonderful, pleasurable thing, as your husband knows, to be a bottom and a sub. And a wonderful thing to be a bottom and a sub and have an understanding female partner for a guy like your husband who's as into it as he is. Hello, Dan. I had been seeing a girl for a while, and we recently started using a vibrator, and she seemed very much enjoy it. She came a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And then afterwards, though, she said that she wasn't interested in using it in the future because she was worried that it would prevent her enjoyment of regular penetrative sex. So I was just curious to see if that is like a thing, if people who use vibrators eventually become desensitized or that was the word she used. So if that's like an actual thing, I would love to know. And if uh, not, I would also like to know that thing. Becoming dependent on a vibrator, definitely a thing that people talk about. I'm not so sure it's something people should waste too much time worrying about rather than looking at that vibrator and seeing something that might prevent her from climaxing during or enjoying penetrative sex, PIV sex, maybe you could look at that vibrator together as something that could enhance your girlfriend's enjoyment of penetrative sex. I think it's less an issue of becoming dependent on vibrations as becoming or falling into a rut, doing the same old thing over and over and over again, because something is a reliable path to pleasure or orgasm that's something you can control for. That's one of the reasons I often tell people, straight people, gay people, to set aside, you know, if it's PIV and that's what you're always doing when you're straight, sometimes just taking PIV off the menu can lead you to new forms of enjoyment, get you off in new and different ways, reconnect you with other erogenous zones. The same thing with taking PIB, penis and butt, off the menu if you're gay and anal is always on the menu, take it off, see where you go, see what happens. If you use the vibrator again and again and you begin to be, it feels like a shortcut, begins to feel like a shortcut and you're not connecting, well, take the vibrator off the menu for a little while. But I don't see the harm in having a vibrator in regular rotation. And sometimes people mistake an emerging physical need. You know, as we age, sometimes we require more intense forms of stimulation to get us all the way there, to get us off. It might be often easier for younger and hornier people to get off without too much stimulation because it's just so exciting to be having sex at all, or you're just so hopped up on hormones. So, you know, sometimes people look at the stage of life they're in when a vibrator enters the scene and they think, oh, I am now increasingly dependent on this vibrator, when what's happening is a kind of passing of the baton, a kind of growing need for more intensity, and the vibrator enters to fill that need. And then people blame and shame themselves or their vibrator for creating a dependence, when what the vibrator is giving you is pleasure and the capacity to still experience and give each other pleasure in the same way that you did when you were young and spry. So don't 
fear the vibrator, but be conscious of not falling too deeply into a groove. Keep things varied. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis straight woman from the Southeast, and I'm calling because I have a problem with one of my students, and I'd love to get your insight and your listeners' insight. I'm a private music teacher, and I have a student who a couple months ago came out as non-binary, and they changed their name and they changed their pronouns. They were assigned female at birth, and now they go by he, they, and they have a new name. And the parents didn't handle the process of telling me very well, by which I mean they didn't tell me at all. They all of a sudden started texting me with this new name, just throwing around, and I had never heard of it. And I felt really terrible because for weeks I continued to misgender and call my student by the wrong name because I, I didn't know what was going on and nobody notified me. So I, I was really unfortunate. I finally had to ask the student, oh, who is this person your parents are throwing around this name? And then they said, oh, that's me. And so that was just not a good experience all around, not a way, good way for the parents to go about it. And the problem is now the father of this student is still misgendering them in front of me and in front of the student, he'll come to pick them up and he'll start throwing around the wrong pronouns. And it's putting me in a weird spot because I, I don't want to seem like I'm chastising the father of the child. I mean, it's, you know, it's like the parents, I guess, have the authority in this situation, but they're also being really inconsiderate and not going about this in the right way and being respectful of their child. So how can I, I guess, be an ally and stick up for this student that I have? We do all kinds of things in lessons. We change pronouns. If it's a love song, for example, from he to she, and I've helped them audition for parts in different shows that are traditionally one gender, but you know, we're trying to break those stereotypes and I tell them that the world is changing and they can audition for whatever part they want. But with these parents, I'm really kind of at a loss. All right. What can you do about this dad who's misgendering your student? Well, you can't deck dad and it might be counterproductive if you aggressively pronounced your student in front of dad as a way of scolding him. But you're alone with this student, private music lessons. You can ask them how they're doing. You can acknowledge that what they're going through right now is hard. You can also apologize for not deploying a little bit more of that deductive reasoning adults are noted for and not realizing when the parents, probably the mom in this case, since the dad is not supportive and the dad is misgendering this kid, were emailing you about this student and using that new name. And since this family probably doesn't have more than one student who's seeing you, you could have been able to tease that out maybe on your own, but you didn't. And everybody makes mistakes. I made a mistake last week or the week before misgendering a non-binary person. I make those mistakes too. Okay. So you ask them how they're doing. You acknowledge that it's hard. And then you tell them that parents often come around. That's something that you can do. In addition to being an adult in their lives, being an authority figure in their lives who uses the correct pronouns and the correct name and gives them an idea of a future that includes many more adults and people in positions of power and also friends and coworkers who are going to do the same, you help put it in perspective. You tell them that parents often 
come around and it takes some parents longer than others. And you tell this kid from me that a lot of us queer adults have been in the position where our parents, when they did come around, apologized to us. And we, you know, we wanted to have relationships with our parents going forward, as most of us do. We accepted those sincere apologies when they came. What you're doing is giving this kid hope for a future, an image in his head of the future, a little bit like the It Gets Better Project, where it's gotten better, where mom and dad have come around and they, like his music teacher, they both accept this kid for who they are. Hey, Dan. I am a 41-year-old cis white female living in the Midwest, and I feel like an idiot. So I met a guy in a bar uh, around Christmas time, and we clicked. We saw each other like the next day after we met and had fooled around. We didn't have sex, but we fooled around heavy, heavy. And then we didn't speak for months, um, which was fine. I was busy dating other people. I don't know what he was doing. So it was no big deal. He reached out to me recently and we went out a couple times. Each time we've gone out, we have gone to one or another person's house and had sex or fooled around. The last time we were together, I couldn't have sex because I had gotten an infection the last time we had sex. So we just did literally everything else you can do. And I really just let him kind of do whatever he wanted to me, which was fine. I actually really like um, kind of kinky, dirty, rougher sex. It's enjoyable for me. I'm into it. Um, but I don't do it with everybody I sleep with. I reserve that for people I really, really like and feel comfortable with. And he was one of those people. So after we hung out and the next morning I left and he left and we went to work and we kissed goodbye. And I thought, I was really stoked. I really thought this person really liked me and I really liked them. And it was gonna go somewhere. So here we are a full week later. I did text him a little bit over the weekend. Uh, it is now Thursday and he didn't respond to any of my texts. And now it's been a full week and I'm wondering if he's just busy or if I'm getting ghosted for some reason or if because I put out and kind of let him do whatever he wants there's nothing really left here for him. So I'm just, I guess I'm wondering two things like, is this too short of a time period for me to be freaking out like this? Should I give him more time to reach out? Should I reach out to him? I have been the one to reach out first in most of the instances <laughs> that we've started talking. And then my second question is, I always thought it was not true that like, if you put out on the first date, a guy won't ask you out again. Like he'll just have sex with you and then never ask you out again because he got what he wanted. So is that true? Should I stop putting out on the first date? You didn't put out on the first date. You met this guy months ago around Christmas. You messed around but didn't have sex. And then you got together two more times. And that last time you had rough sex and he really went for it. It doesn't sound like you guys had a conversation about rough sex. It was just a 
happy coincidence that you enjoy rough sex and you let him go there. And yeah, I'm pretty much an advocate of having a conversation before engaging in any kind of varsity level power play during sex. I think there's always a little power at play during sex, but when you're going to dial it up, when you're going to exaggerate it, when you're going to lean into it, I think that requires a discussion. As for what happened with this guy, uh, I don't know. I get so many calls from people who wonder what they did wrong. And I wish I got more calls, or I guess I don't get calls from people who wonder not what they did wrong, but what was wrong with that guy. I don't think you did anything wrong. You had sex you enjoyed with someone that you enjoyed and felt you may be developing some sort of connection with. He obviously didn't feel the same way. And maybe he was being opportunistic and shitty. Maybe the kind of rough sex he enjoyed with you is a kind of sex that because he's got a Madonna horror thing going on, he can't enjoy with someone he respects or wants to see again. If that's the case, fuck that guy. And anybody who has rough sex with somebody for the first time and then ignores their text messages isn't engaging, you know, in the moment you want to engage in a kind of aftercare. You want to be there for that person, be sensitive, cuddle, be kind. But then afterwards, when you've had rough sex, the person that you had rough sex with, you know, that can dredge up feelings. You need to be, even afterwards, a little available emotionally by text or in person. And he obviously wasn't willing to do that. So he should have crashed out of your feelings at that point, of any consideration you might've had for him around ever wanting to see him again, not because you did something wrong, but because he did something wrong. The only thing I think you're doing wrong right now, personally, as your friend, you know, as a friend, is that you're sitting there wishing you would hear from this guy. You don't wanna hear from this guy. You don't want anything to do with this guy. Again, if this is how he behaves, if this is how he treats you in the wake of the kind of sexual experience that you two shared, fuck him. No, don't fuck him. Don't fuck him ever again. Don't call him. Don't continue to text him. The ball is already in his court. You've already texted him. If he was interested in seeing you or speaking to you Again, you would hear from him again. And you probably, you know what? You probably will hear from him again if you're not smart enough to block his number now when he's horny and he wants to have you the way he had you the last time you two got together. You might hear from him again. Don't hook up with him again. Don't give him another chance. Block his fucking number now. Oh, and I guess I didn't answer your question. Is it true that if a woman puts out too soon, she might not hear from a guy again? I am sure in your friend group, probably in your family, there are people, if they've been honest with you about the night they met, women who put out, and men put out that night, the night they met on the first date, and years later are still together. There are also people who put out on the first night with somebody they just met and never heard from that person ever again. You can't attribute to put out or not put out on the first night, you know, what the final ultimate outcome will be. 
But anybody who holds it against you in a slut-shaming, misogynistic, double-standardy way that you were a woman and you put out on that first night and doesn't want to see you ever again because of that is someone who's doing you a favor by never seeing you ever again for that reason. For a lot of women, putting out on the first date, good sorting hat. You don't want to be with somebody who would have sex with somebody the day they met them, the night they met them, on that first date, be fine with themselves, think that's fine for them, and think there's something shameful about what you did. Fuck anybody who harbors that kind of bullshit, sexist, double standard. Or no, wait, better idea? Don't fuck somebody who feels that way. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I'm a 30-year-old straight lady calling from the Southeast with a question about... how to preserve what I have without hurting people. I started dating again in January after a pretty long hiatus from that scene. I had to process some trauma and shitty relationships with the help of a good therapist. I started dating again in January. I thought I was ready to get out there and touch some hotties, so I joined Tinder. And then, much to my surprise, I met a couple of really interesting dudes, the first uh, right away in January, And this began as a casual hookup sort of situation. And we talked about it, but we both really enjoy each other's company as well. He's funny. We like a lot of the same stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And that has persisted. We talked about the nature of our casual relationship pretty early on. Um, And then I started seeing somebody else a couple months later. Again, uh, he explicitly stated on his profile that he was looking for casual and Again, another really interesting guy. Uh, we have a lot in common as well. I I really like seeing both of these people. They feed different parts of me. And it's so affirming to be around men who are good and kind right now. Uh, I'd like to continue seeing both of them. I guess the problem is that both of these dalliances are turning into things that are looking dangerously like capital R relationships. Um, like both of them are trying to introduce me to their fucking families and I did not sign up for that, but I would like to keep seeing both of these people. I, it's just feeling like it's time for me to be more explicit and transparent about what I'm doing, which is I'm dating two people. I'd like to continue dating two people. I'm open to some degree of evolution in the seriousness of our relationships to one another, but I'm not ready to commit to exclusivity. And I guess I could really use your advice regarding how to do that sensitively and without doing too much harm. I get the sense that I'm going to hurt some feelings here. Ideally, I'd like to continue seeing both of these people. I'm not sure. I know I can't expect that. Um, I'm also only here for another few months. I'm leaving the area at the end of the summer and they both know that. So like I have limited time. I'd like to spend it with both of them. (laughs) Please help. This is something you don't just want to do sensitively. You want to do this promptly. You don't have to do at the beginning of a casual relationship. You establish with both of these guys that you are only interested in something casual, a casual connection. People understand when it's a casual connection that there may be others that you may have casual connections that are concurrent. Well, both of these guys seem to have caught feelings for you in a serious way. If they're talking about wanting to introduce you to their families, they obviously don't have casual feelings about you anymore. So at the very least, even if you aren't going to acquaint each of these guys with the other's existence, you need to reacquaint them with what it is you wanted and what it is you told them you were up for at the start, which was something 
casual. So as something casual, you aren't interested in going deeper. You aren't interested in meeting anybody's parents and you would just like to keep it. What's that word again? You would like to keep it casual. You could, if you wanted, tell them both that the other exists, that you've been seeing more than one person. They might at that moment, and they might be smart to end their connection with you to protect their own feelings. Because if they want to introduce you to mom and dad, both of them at the same time, they have feelings for you. And if you aren't open to exploring something deeper with either or both of them, well, then the relationship has, or relationships have run their course. And since you know, getting on Tinder, there is no dick shortage out there. You will have other casual connections lined up to keep you entertained over the summer with dudes who don't want more than you agreed to, don't want more than you were ready, willing, or able to give. I would urge you to be honest with both of these guys about the fact that you're seeing more than one person right now. You don't have to share photos of the other guy with the other guy, but that you've been seeing more than one person casually and you expected that they might be seeing more than one person, each of them casually and casual is how you'd like to keep it. And if casual ain't how they're feeling it anymore, well then it's probably over with one, the other or both of them, but there are more dudes and more Dick on Tinder. And who knows, you may tell them both what's been going on and it may turn out that they're both by, and this could be the beginning of a whole series of very hot threesomes to keep you entertained and diverted all summer long. All right, before we get to this week's helping of listener feedback, let's read some of this week's listener tweets. Are you going to eat that tweets? The CDC issued another press release on Monday, Dan, specifically addressing the gay bi community concerning monkeypox. LGBT Twitter predictably condemned the CDC for, quote, demonizing gay bi men as plague carriers. All right, right after I recorded last week's intro, the CDC put out a press release saying what I wanted the CDC to say before I recorded last week's intro, which is uh, say something to gay and bi men about their specific risk concerning monkeypox. And people who hadn't listened to my intro yet tweeted the CDC's press release at me, outraged, outraged that the CDC would say such a thing, which again was the thing I wanted the CDC to say a week earlier. Guys, there's nothing homophobic or biphobic about warning gay and bi men about a health risk we face at a moment like this. It's not demonizing us. It's treating us like adults. And the people out there who might use this news in an attempt to demonize gay and bi men are already out there demonizing us already. Trudy Cohen tweets, Hi Dan, just heard episode 813, and I hope that woman living with the alcoholic takes your advice. Pack up your stuff and run. This situation is only going to get worse. If she won't take my advice, which was to run, I hope she takes your advice, Trudy, which again is to run. Finally, Staten Haley tweets, I've been waiting for you to talk about the adorable Netflix series Heartstopper on the podcast, Dan. Is it possible you haven't heard about it yet? Of course I've heard about it. You'd have to be living under a rock in the forest not to have heard about Heartstopper. Maybe I'm an old softy now. I'm with you. Heartstopper made me cry, especially that one scene, which if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, where Charlie apologizes to Nick for kissing him at the big party. Still, between Young Royals and Heartstopper, 
And I'm glad both are in the world. I enjoyed both. We don't have to pick between them. But Young Royals, despite its setting, despite being about Young Royals, far more down-to-earth, far more realistic, subtler, defter emotionally, and for me, more moving. But I watched Heartstopper, loved it. We'll watch the second season of Heartstopper, but I'm most looking forward to the second season of Young Royals. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. Thanks to everybody who posted to your social media about the show this week. We really, really, really appreciate it. Help spread the word about the show. And now listener response calls. Hey, Dan. I feel like I'm calling to give you your own advice back. The bi guy who is in the military wants to leave his wife and move in with another person, but he has two kids at home and he's going to move to the West Coast. And he wants, that's not the way his kids will never get over that one. If he moves to another state, that's not going to work. I feel like a lot of your advice is too soft on the, on the lever. The two people in their 60s, he's by, he wants to leave, mom's crushed. Well, he needs to, what you said, stick the dismount. He needs to make sure that she's going to be financially okay so she can create a new life. If they stay together married, she'll always be in that shadow and won't be able to create a new life for herself. And lastly, the abortion one. That's one of the ones where she told him one thing about herself and he told her everything she needs to know. He couldn't be supportive of her through her abortion, her abortion. He just wasn't available for that time period. That's not a guy you want to be in a relationship with. This is a response call to the woman who was dating the crossdresser, and I just wanted to say that as someone who has a kink for crossdressers, the best thing that you can do to support them is to simply love and accept them for who they are. It is so hard for crossdressing men to not only find a woman who accepts them, but someone who indulges them in their fetish too. So you're already supporting them by having fun dressing up with them and letting them dress you up too. Don't stress. Hi, Dan. I am just calling in to weigh in on the use of the word cunt um, as a negative thing. Here in Scotland, we actually use it in quite a positive way. For example, if somebody is a good cunt, you know that they are a very good person. Or if they're a mad cunt, you know that they are a very good time on a night out. We actually also use it for falling over. So you could like cunt yourself, which would be falling over. Anyway, I just thought I would share that information with you all. Thanks, Dan. And we're going to leave it right there. Got a question for next week's show or something to say about something I said on this week's show? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. A quick programming note, we won't be having a sack lunch in June, but we will return Later this summer, in July, with a special Zoom sack launch hangout exclusively for my Magnum subscribers. And we will have a couple new episodes of Sex and Politics out later this month. That is our bonus podcast just for Savage Lovecast Magnum subs. If you aren't already a Magnum sub, become one today at Savage.love. And June, June is a very special month. It is Celibacy Awareness Month. I was not aware that June was Celibacy Awareness Month until very recently. June, I always thought, was Pride Month. Turns out it's no accident that religious organizations are trying to hijack June to convince straight people to remain celibate until marriage and gay people to remain celibate until 
dot, 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 forever. Can't think of a better gift for anyone you know who supports Celibacy Awareness Month than a fuck first mug. Help raise fuck first awareness. Fuck first before marriage. Most importantly, before marriage, you're going to want to fuck first. Get them the mug that reminds them to fuck first at savage.love slash shop. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Jesse Scheidlower on Twitter at Jesse Scheidlower. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian. And me and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth, we will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.